Hi, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cryo Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. This week, we potentially caught accusations of cronyism by talking to one of the podcast's long-term sponsors, Anton Spitalak from Tribe Breweries. While Anton has indeed been a supporter of the show, we really haven't done much looking at the ever-growing empire over which he presides. But as you'll see, there is much to learn. Anton was talked into taking over the former Australian independent breweries business by his brother, which he rebranded as Brewpack and turned around its fortunes. From contract brewing for others, he has expanded into his own branded product in the shape of Stockade and recently opened a Stockade brewery and barrel room in Marrickville. The recently rebranded Tribe Breweries is also expanding with a $35 million production brewery set for Goulburn and the business is also expanding into production for the Asian market. Anton is always an interesting interview subject and this is a very broad-ranging interview about Tribe Breweries and the business of beer. Enjoy the conversation. Anton Spitalak, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Matt, great to be on board. Thanks for having me. Matt, hopefully our listeners will uh, not see this as a bit of grubby commercialism, given that you've, <laughs> you've been a long-time uh, sponsor of the, of the podcast, but uh, I've actually had to come chasing you to, uh, to have a chat. Yeah, no, it's been great to work with you guys over the last couple of years, and uh, yeah, I probably should have been pushing you more for content, but never have. <laughs> no, no, funnily enough, the, the the people who want to be involved in uh, the the Radio Brews News shows typically, you know, don't want to influence the content, which is 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 the perfect sort of uh, you know sponsor, I guess. It's 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 what we uh, dream of, but we are a little bit worried that whenever we do feature um, stories that it does look a little bit gratuitous, which uh, certainly it's not, because for those who don't know, you are the CEO of uh, what was Brewpack, um, but is now Tribe Breweries, but also Stockade. So I think it's a fairly organic story that doesn't look too much like it's a corporate intervention. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, it's. It, it, there's been a lot of movement, even since we last talked on this show a couple of years ago. I mean, Lots of evolution of our business. I guess you could say lots of evolution in the craft business generally, and we're kind of we're keeping up the pace with that. So yeah, lots of changes, lots of cool stuff happening. Happy to talk about it. Very much because uh, I will link back to that story because we talked a lot about the uh, you know the, the business arc or the uh, you know product arc of craft beer back in in that stage, and uh, talked a little bit about um, Brewpack and, and and your business. But uh, this one is going to be a lot more about your business because there is so much going on and there is so much news coming out of it. But I guess. If you could just introduce um, people that maybe haven't, you know, aren't familiar with you, because uh, you know a, a lot of independent breweries have a face to them. You're not really the public face of uh, Brewpack or Tribe. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I think it's hard when you're you know designing your brand architecture, and I think there's a natural draw card for the kind of for the brand or in the in that craft portfolio to try and put like a, a hero person behind it. For us, because by the time we hit the ground with Stockade, it was such a big team effort, we never really focused on that. So I guess it was never, you know, never really a cult personality brand 
like you might have with other breweries by virtue of the fact that it's such a team effort on how we how we pull this whole thing together and it's such an expression of a larger larger group of people that it didn't ever make sense to. Now, just just for the uh, thirty second recap, um, you came to take over the old Australian independent breweries contract brewing business through your brother from memory. Yeah, exactly. So if I wind the clock back to what seems as if another life ago, uh, which was my pre-beer life, uh, I was living overseas and so, and my brother was had been living overseas for the better part of 10 years and he had gone through his German brewing academy process that culminated in him becoming a brewmaster over at the Weinstefan Academy. And so he came to Australia and was working in what was at the time uh, Australian independent brewers which back then in 2011 was a, a bit of a home for the emerging New South Wales and a little bit on the national scale for those kind of embryonic craft brands. And, uh, and he, he started working at that brewery and then you know, he had left shortly thereafter. He kind of had seen a bit, of, a bit of smoke and then he kind of came back when the receivers brought him in to run it. And then at that moment when he was running that under receivership is when he started to say to us, hey guys, you know, there's a business down here in beer that we should have a look at why don't we all get involved in the brewing game together? And it took some convincing for me and my um, uh, two other brothers, so there's four boys in, in the family and we're all involved in this business. But um, once we kind of you know, knuckled down and had a look at it, it was pretty obvious that Australia was undergoing a really cool and awesome transformation when it came to what people were drinking. And we saw that you know, we, could, we could play an active role in that. And next thing you know, we're involved in the brewing business. And that's you know, 2012 in July coming up to almost six years now. Six years, and it, it took you a little while to bed down, you know, when you took over the business to, to re-establish uh, Brewpack as a contract brewer, which is a pretty hard game. I mean, there, there are a lot of breweries renting the market. A lot of breweries are um, contract brewing, but contracting is a fairly low-margin business, isn't it? You know, it's really hard. I think that, and if you look at what we do, we currently run the most skew-diverse uh, production brewery, I think, in Australia. So we, we, we run about 150 SKUs in any year. And, I, you know, and again, don't quote me on these because these are statistics I'm hearing third-hand, but I think the Yatla Brewery over from CUB in Queensland runs about the same number of SKUs, but they do it off about 500 million litres. So they're, you know, they're, they're 75 times larger than us. So for us, um, it's a game that requires a very specific skill to be flexible and nimble and responsive and dynamic. And you're really generally catering to that fast-moving frontier of, of, of where things are becoming a little, a little strapped for capacity in those really cool, awesome, creative breweries who are looking for partners. So it is a challenging business, but it's something that we grew up doing. So when we first inherited the business in 2012, that's all we did. And I guess that, that first 12 months, yeah, it's a rocky road. You know, you're taking a business that's a turnaround story. You've got to embed a lot of, a lot of process, a lot of sweat, a lot of money. It was a, it's a challenging backdrop, but I think we had the benefit of, of having a rolling start. We had the benefit of, of some great team members who really wanted to get on that journey with us, and we had the benefit of some kind of technical background in manufacturing generally, and then my brother's background in beer that, that gave us the legs to, to, to build the business. But certainly that, that 12 months was really hard. But it is a, it, it's just a tough business of itself because you take the, the, the raw ingredients and manufacture to order, so you're really selling high volume, low margin product, um, good quality product, um, you'd hope, but high volume, uh, low margin, and somebody else then does the marketing and the you know, salesmanship um, of that beer. Um, so it, it, it's a pretty tough business to get right, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think you've got a pretty broad, broad spectrum in the business. So I think you've got aspects of the business that might be similar to the way that you described it, you know, the, the high volume, low margin side of things. 
you know, you, you can find that at the top end of the, of the volume sphere, but it's not a lot of the times when we come across partners who are looking for solutions, it's not, you know, I need this liquid in a bottle. It's like, here's where my business is going. Here are the options that I'm, that I'm considering, you know, where do I go? And for us, we've got to be really neutral on the outcome of the market. And we've got to be really supportive of general beer because when people are looking for better options, they'll find their way into need partner brewing, which is kind of that, that aspect of our business. So for us, it's, it's actually pretty, it's pretty supportive of, of the entire complex. And it's not just a kind of, you know, 10,000 cases of, a, of, one, of one type of beer. Often we're in conversations where our partners are saying, hey, I've got a production challenge with this style of beer. You know, you know, can you do it? How can we work on it together? Or I'm looking at doing A, B, and C. So it can run the full gamut from us developing recipes with partners for specific products all the way through to a brewer coming to us saying, hey, it's summer, I need 200 kegs. Can I get it? Here's my recipe. I think it kind of, it runs the full spectrum. But at the same time, one of the things that I, I think from memory you guys instituted um, is that you would only deal in pasteurized beer. Um, and in the, in the craft world, that takes a bit of an attitude shift for both brewers and the market um, and has a bit of a, a legacy for contract brewing. Is that a fair comment? You know, this whole concept of pasteurization is a really interesting conversation. I mean, I had no technical background in beer when I, when I took over the business. And I have to give a credit to my older brother who, he kind of sat me down and he said, hey, Anton, there's some, there's some breweries who want products that we probably shouldn't make for them. And at that stage for me, I was questioning, I was like, well, why? You know, like if they're asking for a product, you know, why don't we, why don't we make the beer exactly the way that they want to make it? And his concept was, look, Anton, you know, you're going, to, you're going to expose yourself. You're going to expose yourself to risk that you probably don't want to take. And I have to say, you know, the, the, the culmination of that thinking went all the way through to how we created our quality assurance program. And I remember very clearly there was a situation a year down the track where when we were developing a full-blown in-house micro A to Z multimedia testing program that we do on every batch of beer, I was sitting in front of a guy who was a Von Stefana uh, a colleague of my brother who has specialized in the micro side, left Germany, much like my brother left, went to the US, made micro programs for big American craft breweries. And I sat down in front of him and I, I basically posed this problem to him. I said, hey, this concept of pasteurization, you know, tell me about it. You know, like my, my brother's really militant about this and he, he wants us to, to be pretty rigid on it. What are your thoughts? And his concept, he said, look, Anton, you know, I can, get, I can deliver you a program where you've got pretty high degree of confidence that you're going to have a clean bill of health on every, every batch of beer that you make. But he said, you know, look at, look at where I've just come from. I've come from very big breweries who invest, you know, a, a ton of money in quality of beer. And a lot of those big American breweries, they're, they're going down this avenue because it, no matter how much you minimize that risk, you can, you, you can eliminate it. And ultimately, their brand value is harmed more by those Six Sigma events than what you can control. And he said, and, and these, are, these are breweries, Anton, which have got a six-week, you know, ideal consumption chain, and it's all cold. So he said, Anton, I feel as if your, your program here would be best suited to do that, because even if your market is, is, a bit, is a bit wishy-washy on whether or not this is a solution for you, why don't we just focus on getting you an amazingly high-quality product, which people can't tell the difference of, and that you know will be good in that chain. And ultimately, that will be a differentiating factor between you, know, you and your competitors who maybe don't do this activity because it's more expensive. It costs us in energy imports. The infrastructure is more expensive. Running pasteurizers are not cheap. But if we can deliver the best of both worlds, which is you know, best-in-class global craft quality assurance program with the belt and suspenders approach for flash pasteurization for kegs and in-bottle pasteurization for in-package pasteurization on the line, 
then you'll be in a situation that over the long run, your clients will be better off. And I think if you, if you look at the success of some of the clients we've worked with over the time, it's an indicator of that because they've, they've, had, they've had the assurance, not just for their own consumers, but for the intermediaries like the major retailers, the banner groups, the pubs, they're going to have a great outcome with their product. And, and ultimately, I think that when, when, when people started to think about the pasteurization concept, a lot of that was due to the fact that the DE filtration, if that's the path you want to go down in order to remove your yeast, it has a lot of flavor stripping um, concepts. And for some of those highly hopped or highly aromatic beers, it's very relevant. I mean, when we first introduced our centrifuge, you know, and, we, and, we, and where we could still leave a protein haze in our beers, you could kind of deliver a presentation of product that was very similar to an unpasteurized beer with the full aroma and characteristics that you were looking for, but just reduce the risk. So, and I, I put the challenge to a lot of brewers, and I think we should do that together. You know, Matt, I've been challenging you on this for a little while. Let's sit down with some brewers, give them even their own beers pre and post, and let's have them kind of, you know, spot the difference here because the consumer is the one that you really want to make sure that you're impressing. And at the end of the day, you know, one, you know, really bad bottle of beer, one really bad beer can do a lot more damage than what people think. And, and that's really what we're keen to avoid with that program. Oh, we can certainly uh, look at doing that. But uh, I've actually just finished a chat with another brewer um, who has released a beer that they've used. It's a champagne IPA or a brute IPA and uh, that they've used um, enzymes to break down the, the, the last few starches in it to give it a really dry finish. And uh, so I had a very interesting chat with him about, you know, whether that, um, you know, starts to bring in the idea of industrialization because it's the same process of large brewers use to make low-carb beers and uh, people love to talk about industrial beer and yet we're seeing craft brewers um, using uh, enzymes and uh, he actually you know, uh, made a comment about you know it's not like pasteurization so we are seeing brewers starting to depending on what their particular outcome is use different techniques that were once a province of uh, larger brewers and uh, I, I think that that's a, a good thing. Yeah, that's, a, that's another key point that I went through an education process too because I think a lot of people approach the business and, you know, big is bad and small is good and, you know, everything that we do must be better than everything that, 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 that the big end of town does. And I think that this is, this is something that you learn through the process. I mean, you know, I'm, not every single beer that the major breweries in Australia make I'm a big fan of. Not every single beer that the macro brewers make in the US I'm a big fan of, obviously. But, you know, one thing you have to give them credit for is that they invest an entire, you know, a massive amount of resource and money to drive, you know, consistent outcomes. And, you know, when we look at what the best practices are for us in order for us to ascertain quality assurance programs, micro programs, I mean, they're not things that, you know, exclusively small craft brewers in the U.S. developed. We're really tagging off, off, some, of, off some of the practices that, that the bigger brewers have to make sure they do a good job. And if you think of, you know, the, the provenance and the, and, the, and the background stories for some of those bigger brewers, I don't think that it's necessarily big is bad and small is good. I think that what small can do can be great and what's, what's appealing to clients. But then on some, of this in, on some of these larger scale production concepts, those big guys, I mean, they're leaders in that field. And if we can get to a point where we're, we're being able to deliver a product as consistently over 150 years as some of these brands are, I mean, that's a feather in our cap. I mean, you know, for a lot of people just getting a, you know, two brews side by side week in week to be reasonably similar is a goal, let alone flavor matching over you know, 300 years. So I, 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 I envy the position of some of those guys in, in, how, in how they can work on that. And for us, our, our goal is that we can guarantee consistency and precision for every batch. And we do a pretty damn good job of it, but we obviously are following the footsteps of those who have invested you know, centuries to make sure that we, that we can. Now, we've gotten a little bit away from uh, <laughs> your own business. Uh, we've <laughs> That's a normal down. discussion with you, Matt. 
down the rabbit hole, as, a, as is often the way. Um, but okay, so back to Brewpack. So you started Brewpack, you've got it sorted. You then introduced your own uh, proprietor, you know, proprietal range uh, in Stockade. Um, and we've seen that grow. It's created a, a bit of excitement. And you've now opened a, a brewery and barrel room uh, for, for that brand alone. Tell me the thinking about that. You know, why, why go to the investment of trying to create your own brand? You know, it's a great question. When, when I first took over the brewery, we, were, we saw a big opportunity in that kind of partner brewing set. And that's really where, where we focused for that first couple of years. And, and that was, and at the time, we had no interest and no motivation to go out and make our own brands. We kind of got sucked into it from, from some downstream partners in the pub space who had said, look, you guys are making great beers. You know, give us a beer. We want, we want something to be put on tap that's, that, that's, that's what we want that, you know, that could be, you know, potentially something that you guys could look at for, um, for your own brand in the future. And it's, it's funny the way that kind of beer sucks you in or intoxicates you. <laughs> no pun intended there, Matt. But um, you get into a position where you start to be a little bit creative and then you're on the journey. And then that creativity starts to manifest itself in the demand to go further and further and to express yourself in what you're making. And I guess that's the allure of all these creative artists and industries. And that's kind of what Stockade evolved to be. And it got to a point which kind of dovetails into your conversation about our bowroom room in Marrickville where you know, we started to work with oak. We started to do 12% imperial stouts. We started to do kettle sours. I kind of looked at the at the fermented sours and some of the kind of, you know, the yeast beers and saying, wow, these are so awesome. I, you know, I want to, I'm loving these so much and my team is loving these so much. We want to we tell that to our brand. And that's where we said to ourselves, you know, if we're going to go down this road, which is a, it's a pretty deep rabbit hole, we, you know, we have to separate that from the rest of what we do because not just from a brand and activation and, and engagement perspective, but also from a quality perspective, we've got to make sure that we're kind of ring fencing our, our, our production between wild, crazy and, and, you know, totally out there on the, on the far edges of the frontier to, you know, some of those more quote unquote state styles like IPAs and pale ales and, you know, craft pilsners. And that's really where, where Marrickville came from. And, it took us a while to pull together, but we're really happy with the result now. We've got, you know, 260, 200-litre barrels in residency at the moment. We've got some – we've been ageing barrel-aged stouts, which is the first stage of our program, is generally dark beers. And then as we're becoming more skilled, making mistakes, learning from our lessons, we'll, you know, we'll evolve that program into that full gamut of everything from, you know, bourbon stouts, which has been our background and our, and our, and our history, through to, you know, barrel-aged fermented sours, through to – some um some some lacto work and stuff like that too so it's pretty interesting is there an element of the stockade brand that is designed to showcase what you guys can do or do you pretty much have that large-scale uh contract brewing market to yourselves and you don't need to advertise your skills or your wares yeah it's a funny question that we always talk about you know and this is kind of plays to what tribe is I guess this is a great kind of dovetail into that conversation because the concept of, of Stockade is an expression of, of our creativity and it's an expression of our brewers and what they want to drink and what they want to make and our kind of our, our rep team, what they're loving right now. And those ideas get thrown into a melting pot and then the, the result of that forge is the Beersley release. So it's not, we didn't create that program to say, hey, you know, we want to show the world that we can do a great, you know, barrel-aged 12% imperial stout. We made a 12% imperial stout that was barrel-aged because we, that's what we want to drink. And so that's kind of, that process was very organic. I think that, you know, you've got this 
into play when you develop a branded portfolio and you, you're also working with partnership with existing brands in the marketplace, you have to be mindful of that there may be tension over time because people may see that as competitive or overlapping. Luckily for us, you know, yes, we brew for 40 breweries. You know, yes, we make brands that share shelf space with other brands, but the marketplace is, is so deep and the requirement from the consumer is so dynamic and broad that we've never really put ourselves in a position where the market's been forced to make choices between our clients. And um, I think that's a, that, that's a, and I, I doubt that's going to happen because that, that proliferation of product and that, and that proliferation of brand isn't slowing down, it's accelerating. So for us, you know, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a great journey so far and, and that's really kind of when we had a, you know, a, a wake-up moment last year. We're in the process of, of taking stock of who we are. We were, we were looking to, to raise the money to, to move into Goulburn and, and we found ourselves in a position where we just had a strategic, a strategic um, stock take. And we looked at Brewpack and what Brewpack had become and how it was moving out of just beer and it was doing a lot of work in the cider space and was starting to work in the RTD space. And then we looked at Stockade and we looked at what we're doing there. We, we actually picked up another brand along the way. We make Wild Gluten Free now, which is, um, which is a brand we had been making it, um, for a while over in Smith and Grange, but we now, now we own the brand. And we're saying, look, you know, this is kind of, it's a lot more collaborative than we had first anticipated. This kind of, this work of partner brewing for brands working with downstream partners to develop portfolios that suit their consumers' taste, expressing ourselves through a variety of, of, uh, of our own proprietary products. It's, a bit, it's becoming together and it's, it's, it's consolidating on something grander and that's really where Tribe was born because we felt like having these two distinct business models that were marketed differently and branded differently, presented differently, wasn't truly representing who we were becoming, which was like a home for brands and a home for artisans, whether or not we partner with them, whether or not we create them, whether or not we export them. And that's really where we kind of said, hey, we need to kind of get out there and tell a story a little bit better and, and present ourselves as one unified voice. And then that's where Tribe comes from. Mate, with the proliferation of brewers, and we're seeing a lot of people, you know, we're seeing a lot of people investing in stainless themselves, but still seeing a lot of people who love the idea of having a beer brand come into the market. Um, and, you know, craft brewing is a great way to start building your brand do you ever have businesses that come in um, and you know they're, they're full of passion and full of excitement, but do you ever just sit them down and say, look, guys, you really don't have a business? Um, or do you not see that as your realm? Matt, if I think about what role we play, it is to provide lubrication where historically there was friction, to knock down barriers where they otherwise existed. For me to arbitrate, what brands I think may survive, what business models may work is almost the opposite of what we try and do. Like we, we're enablers. Like the way I see our role in the system is um, we're expertise and capital providers that help people bridge gaps that would otherwise exist in their business models. And so I'm, I'm supportive for anyone who wants to come out, express themselves and say, this is who I am. And sometimes those ideas may seem totally crazy. They may seem totally off the wall. You're like, man, you know, these guys, what are they doing? They're either stepping into a landscape which is crazy crowded and how would they differentiate themselves or their product idea is so wild, it'll never take off. But that's not really for me to arbitrate. I, I've, you know, my role in that is to say to these guys, you know, if you're passionate and you want to make it happen, we can be there for you in a variety of ways. If you want to help with help making recipes, we can do that. If you want help in scaling your production, your first time production, we can do that. We can help you all the way from cradle to cradle. That's our role. And I think that some of the most exciting and great partners we've had over the years are people who are pushing the envelope who sound crazy. Let me give you an example. The guys behind Wild, okay? So Chris and Narelle Gordon, who are a, a couple who had played around the beer space for a while and they had launched 
um, I think it's Barragum Billy Natural Lager, you know, under the Koala Brewing Company mark. And they came to to Sunny and the brewing team early in the day, early in the in the in the takeover days, and when we first had the brewery, and said, "Hey, I want to do a gluten free beer." I mean, back then that sounds like a crazy idea, you know, like you know, gluten free beer. Who would have thought that was going to be something that took off? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of the traditional beer drinkers who who aren't you know um, pigeonholed into that consumption pattern. You know, just why? Why would you do that? I mean, you've got you know, craft is booming. People are going for more flavor, and you know, you t- you tying your hands behind your back. But they really want to present a great option to that marketplace. And sure, it sounded crazy, but you know, five years on, they've got I think the number two gluten-free brand in the country. They're selling you know boatloads of beer. It's a it's a it's a big skew for us. And I can't you know you can't you can't question where that creativity comes from. And I think that that aspect of doing everything you can to support those ideas is a big part of what's driving this general consumption pattern for different things and and and, and expressing your individuality by the products that you buy. So our role is 100% to support that in any way we can across any product that we can make. And we keep trying to make new products so that people who have a dream can go into whatever crazy way they want to. And uh, I think we've disappeared down another rabbit hole, <laughs> but it, it, it's a good one. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's fascinating. But uh, so bringing it back down to back to Tribe, you have recently, so Brewpack has uh, established itself. Uh, you've created your own uh, branded range uh, through Stockade, um, but now you've rebranded Brewpack to Tribe. Talk me through, you know, and, and coming with that is a uh, big expansion to Goldburn. It's a $35 million brewery that's going to see you expand your capacity, uh, what, almost ninefold from up from about, uh, you, you're brewing about 9 million litres a year at the moment, if that's correct? Yeah, so our current facility at Sweet Grange kind of maxes out at about that level. And then our new facility over in Goulburn can, you know, our first phasing on that is probably closer to 30 million litres. We'll have stainless to go for a portion of that to begin with, but our critical infrastructure and underpinning can go all the way to 30, and we've got space to go bigger. So we, we've got a home now which can express ourselves through whatever we grow in the next 20 years, no matter how ambitious we are. <laughs> so uh, talk a little bit about what the name tribe means. Yeah. None, none of these things are done without a, you know, a, a, an idea underpinning them, I'd imagine. Yeah, so our tribe... Our tribe is our people. You know, our tribe are our brands. Our tribe are our partners. And when we were, you know, reforming how we wanted to display ourselves, we took a stock on who we'd become. And we became like a collective home for so many people. We became a home for, you know, young home brewers who wanted to be trained into production brewers and, you know, make craft on a bigger scale. We, we became a home for... Uh, for cider brands who were looking for growth options, for beer brands, we became a home for marketeers and others. And that really, that tribe seemed to be that kind of natural, natural fit for how to express that. And because it was a, re- it's a really collective model, you know, we, we invest in infrastructure and expertise and then we offer it to whoever's got a great idea that they want to bring to market. And sometimes that gets expressed through our own portfolio of products. Sometimes it gets expressed through the wishes of downstream partners sometimes it gets expressed through the wishes of brands. So it's a really kind of it's a it's a collective model and it's it's giving access to to, to infrastructure that's not usually shared in the history of Australian beer or beverages generally, which has been very centralised um, infrastructure. So it's a it's it's a shared model and as we were thinking about how to articulate that, you know, this kind of tribe of people, tribe of brands, tribe of ideas came together and that's where tribe was born. It's funny you talk about a centralised model, but isn't that in a way what you're doing? You're taking a whole lot of smaller you know, operations and centralising them in, in, in your equipment for national dist- distribution? 
Yeah, no, I mean, that would, that's, a, that's a great way to articulate it. The big difference between what we're doing now and what others do is that you know, in, the, in the history of Australian beer is we're just giving access to that for whoever wants it. You know, we're not, we don't moonlight partner brewing. It's, it's, been a, it's been a big part of our core business since the very beginning. You know, when we make an investment for $35 million into a brewery, we're not doing that because we think that our brand will be a 30 million litre brand in three years. And we just, and then along that journey, we'll just pick up some, you know, some partner brews so that we can fill capacity. We're doing that because it's a commitment to our partners who are relying on us to say, hey, you guys grow, we'll be there. So yes, definitely, we are centralising the brewing for some of those, for some of those skews, for some of those, some of those beers, some of those ciders. But we're we're doing so on an open basis, fully transparent, and that anybody can access. And that is the kind of novel area that that we're bringing to the table compared to other guys that came before us. Now you've also got an interesting operation that's uh, brewing beer for Southeast Asia. Um, I, yeah. I, I have to say I can't quite I haven't quite got my head around exactly what you're doing there and how that came about. Yeah. So look, if you think of the greater consumption story in our in our more close global region. You know, the people in, in Asia are kind of going through their own journey. They're, they're a little bit earlier on the picture than what we are here today, and we're a little bit earlier on the picture than what people might be in the UK or the US. But that trajectory is pretty similar. You know, that's a, it's, a, it's a questioning of, of what I'm being told and what I'm consuming and then seeing if I can find something that more represents who I want to be and what I like to, to have. And that story is happening as equally in Thailand or Vietnam or mainland China as it's, as it's been happening here over the last couple of years. My family's had a lot of work. Um, we've done a lot of work in Asia, so you know, we had uh, my travels overseas were mainly through Asia, and a lot of the projects that I've been working on before beer were in that area. My younger brother spent a good chunk of his upbringing in Thailand. You know, we had borders in our house. Um, three brothers, it's almost a similar story to us, but no beer involved, who were Thai kids and came through my house. And so at the age of thirteen, which is a crazy idea, my parents let him go. You know, my, my, my youngest brother was in Thailand for his first summer and he went there every summer. He became a monk in Thailand over a period of two months, which is a rite of passage for the family that he was staying with. So our connection to, to the greater Asia areas is very strong and in particular in Thailand. So, you know, about, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, we were in Thailand and talking to some emerging brewers and we could see the writing on the wall, what was happening there. And we started to work with them and say, hey guys, you know, like if, if, we, if, we, if we look at where this journey's going, you know, we can, we can, we can, in some ways, tell you the, tell you what some of the future may hold, and let, you know, what does that mean for your business, and how can we work together to help you in that? And lo and behold, you know, next thing you know, we're we're partner brewing for two of the fastest growing craft brands in Thailand. We're bringing in, you know, more beer um, via containers of Australian craft beer in Thailand than anybody had ever before on a craft basis. So it was, and we were killing it. And that's when, you know, we start, people started to pay attention and we said, hey, you know, rather than just partner brewing this, why don't we, you know, do partner brewing in addition to also creating brands under this model where we partner with people who've got certain expertise, you know, we deliver them our expertise and we can kind of work together to give drinkers outside of Australia access to that journey we're giving them in Australia. And that's where Chow Siam came from. So it was a, it's a brand, it's a 50-50 JV between us and a, and a local distributor in, um, in Thailand, which has had a great pedigree of importing fine wine and spirits and who's just waking up to, to what they want to drink and with regards to them as founders. And we use local university students to help us come up with a brand. And next thing you know, we're in the marketplace with a portfolio of, um, of craft beers in Thailand. And we, we hope to kind of replicate that model in a number of places. So that kind of, that, 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 that tribe business model of, you know, how do we best represent this trend? You know, do we partner brew with retailers over there? Do we 
do a joint venture with somebody? Do we just sell them stockade? Because we move stockade into Thailand, Vietnam, um, Singapore, Hong Kong. You know, we've done mainland China. So it's, we have a, you know, a, a variety of solutions that we can put into every market, but the overall thesis is the same. People want to drink better. People want to drink different. And we've got a whole bag of tricks of which we can, we can bring to the table there to try and get those guys on that journey with us. Do you see, with, with such a big expansion in capacity um, at, at Goldburn, do you see the export market as, uh, as soaking up a lot of that expansion? Or do you see that there's going to be a, a lot more volume consumed in Australia from, from your breweries? Look, I think that we're not finished the craft journey in Australia as drinkers yet. Like, I mean, we've got plenty of scope to grow that marketplace. And obviously our, our gamble is that Tribe can play a key role in that. And we're going to play a key role in that through all the ways that we've talked about today, the different ways that we express our model. Most certainly the Asian story and the export story is interesting for us. You know, we think there's great opportunity there. I mean, look at the, the numbers are staggering. You know, the market penetration rates have to be so thin in order for you to fill Goulburn and need four Goulburns. So there's obviously lots of kind of options and opportunity in that space. We look at it just one step at a time, you know, create a great partner set, create a great, you know, Rolodex of customers, create a great brand, make sure that the quality of the liquids is good. And then if you if you catch the right veins, then you might be in a great position. Um, the recipe is not that different over there than it is here. It involves more people than it does here because we have uh, offshore partners, but that journey is very similar. And um, I think that it could be a substantial part of what we do if we have any one of these markets fire on all cylinders. But if that's the case and we run out of capacity, then we'll just expand and, and make more beer. One of the things I'm struggling to get my head around at the moment is, you know, having, uh, you know, in, in my own craft beer journey, which goes back, um, you know, to well before craft beer was craft beer, it was microbrewed beer or boutique beer, um, and now it's come to be seen as craft beer. And craft beer has had these evolving definitions and these evolving, evolving philosophies behind what it is. And, you know, it, it seems to be the thing driving it at the moment is independence and especially um, local beer, that you people want to know that they're drinking a local beer and not a beer that's been shipped halfway around the world. And yet we are starting to see those same craft breweries, or maybe not the same ones, but we are starting to see an element of the craft beer market you know, look to export opportunities, which almost seems to be counterintuitive um, with some of the questions of fresh or local or you know small do you think that there is an inconsistency in in the approach that we're seeing you know it's a, you, you go pretty big pretty fast don't you Matt? I, mean, <laughs> I think that um let's let's kind of let's go down your checklist of, of questions there firstly on definition of craft look even if i was a good authority on that you know it's it's i'm in a position now where it's what we're making so varied it's, and I, I feel as if that definition of craft is, an, is, a, is almost to ponder that is cliche. It's more about are you giving people what they want? You know, are you are you creative? Are you engaging? That to me is you know the, we use the word craft because it's it, it puts us in a box that's neat to explain to the outside world, but really for us, you know, we don't we don't it's it's not about that. The um the question you asked around market structures and and whether or not there is a concept of of local uh, production for these foreign brands. Let's look at Thailand as an example. Thailand, you, to get a manufacturing license for beer is not easy. You have two packaged beer manufacturers domestically. One is uh, Singha and one is Chang. And they're two of some of the largest companies in Thailand. And they've, they have a pretty good control over that licensing market. So if you want craft beer, if you want bottled craft beer, you can't get it from Thailand. If, even if you're a local Thai brewery, you might have a pub brewery, but if you want to start putting a package, that's a challenge. So you're going to get it from us, 
in Australia. You're going to get it from potentially someone in Cambodia or Vietnam. You've got some choices, but it's not going to get made domestically until the law changes. So you've got these young Thai consumers or you know, homebrewers or people who just want something different. But they want a chance to do that. They're going to find their way into an imported product just by virtue of that market structure. And that's not unique to Thailand. There's a lot of markets where it's challenging. And that's where we see a lot of those kind of frontiers open up to begin with. So I feel like, you know, if we want to, do, if people, if we want to expose those consumers, they've got to have imported options, and that's kind of what what we can help facilitate. The back end of that is around kind of freshness, and I think that's um, it's a great question. You know, I think when you whenever you're importing beers, and we've imported loads of amazing foreign beers from the US and from the UK, and there's always a question of you know fresh and otherwise. First thing is is that the supply chain between Australia in, and Thailand is not not much more arduous than it is between Sydney and Perth. I mean, yes, you've got a container, you've got a ship, you've got you know an extra couple of weeks. Temperatures are pretty similar in summer. You know, we we ship refrigerated containers to Singapore, so our beers land in Singapore and they're presenting amazing for stock eight. You know, we've done a really good job building that brand over there with our partner. So it's kind of I feel as if if you handle it right, it can be okay. Certain beer styles, you know, travel the distance way better than others. You know, I think our biggest selling beer in Thailand right now is a wit beer. You know, it's not as it's not as much of a challenge as maybe a, a beer like Chop Shop might be, which is or or eight beer, which might, an IPA or a big pale ale, which is super hoppy and aromatic. So, I think you're kind of crafting the story to make sure you're playing off your strengths. And also, I mean, some of those big bold aroma characters that you may see we're really into here those super aromatic floral IPAs. I mean, that's kind of second evolution of the journey. Those guys, you know, they might not, that might not be exactly what that consumer is looking for right now. And there could be a question of whether or not they ever really want it. So that solution set certainly has valid aspects of it today. How that evolves and what we can do in the future to make sure it's there is, is as much a function of how much you want to invest in that supply chain as it is to what your capability is to deliver that in Sydney. So that's, there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle and that, that, that journey is not over. We're just starting it. You know, we're just exploring it. We're just learning about it. We're just taking every market as we come and every partner as we can and what we want to do. Where do you see our market? I think last time we got into a fairly uh, big discussion about mega um, you know, trends and you know, smaller trends. You know, where do you see the craft beer market is um, in, in, in Australia? Um, you know, where we're seeing a lot of small breweries starting, but then we're also seeing the bigger ones start to sell out. Do you think that there is one... Uh, you know, one notion of craft, or do you think that there is a whole lot of submarkets? And uh, how how do how should businesses go about uh, entering the market? In your view of the market, there's a lot of risk in, in going for a huge investment, and, and and obviously we had the backdrop of this you know rather substantial partner brewing platform that gave us the confidence, export work, our own brands. Um, we had a lot of confidence to make that investment. I think it's really hard. I look back on my journey in the first couple of years when I launched Brewpack, and it was tough, man. Like, I mean, we 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 did it, even though we had every advantage. We we got in cheap because it was a liquidated company. We we had background we had backgrounds in manufacturing. We had a great team. We'd been doing it before. We had clients. It was still really challenging. So I think anybody who thinks they can hit the ground running and get it right every time and not have a margin of error and and it will kind of you know go from zero to one hundred overnight. I mean, that's a that's a that's a big that's a big call. I almost think that the other end of the market where you've got someone who's super passionate and it's it's all about that kind of local play and they just want to have a little brew pub who kicks out beers to people down the road. I mean, that's a that's that's a model I don't think is going away. I don't think those guys shut down. I think that there's going to be more and more of those guys. I think that the space that becomes more crowded is that space in between the top end of town where there's only a certain amount of fridge doors in Dan Murphy's. There's only a certain amount of taps in a local pub. So there's not going to be 10,000 breweries who are jostling for that for that share 
but there might be thousands of breweries who are just down the road from you that might be, you know, a place you can't go have a beer on a Thursday or a Friday and you might take a growler home. So I kind of feel like the market almost going through a barbell concept right now, where it's at, you know, at the bottom end of the market, there's an explosion of people who may or may not have aspirations to be bigger. And the top end of the market, the people who've got momentum and who've been there for a little while and who established themselves are pushing into that. And we're partners to some of those guys. We're an aspirant in that category ourselves. So I kind of feel like it's on both sides. It's hard to tell, you know, where you're in a cycle, like where you feel like you might be. I feel like it's, it always looks clear in hindsight, you know, where you were in the financial crisis. Oh, there was a train coming that everyone could see or, you know, where we might be in the big crisis of 2022 or what have you. But for now, you know, I see people in my immediate network who know what I do, who have been to my brew before and they give me a call and say, hey, I just had this great beer. I had an IPA the other day. You know, do you guys make any IPA? And obviously I chuckle a little bit and say, mate, if you're close to me and being having access to free beer for a while and you're just discovering that, that gives me good, good confidence that the Australian consumer is still not quite there yet. And I think that's um, that gives me confidence that we're still on the right track and there's plenty of blue sky opportunities for us to pursue. Mate, that's uh, probably we've covered a lot of ground in in that chat. And that's probably as good a uh, time to leave it because I know you're heading off to a meeting. So, uh, Anton, thank you very much for for joining us on Beer as a Conversation, and uh, look forward to getting down. Well, next week is BrewCon. I look forward to getting down and checking out the, uh, the, the the Stockade Barrel Room while I'm down there. Yeah, awesome. Come for a beer. We'd love it. Cool, mate. And um, also, thank you very much for your support of uh, Radio Brews News as well. It, it, it is appreciated, even if we don't give you that much love. No, no, no. I look again. I, the, the more love you give, almost is a is a it would raise too much questions if it was too much. To be honest with you, Matt, I mean, you guys are great. You know, the fact that you're such an authority on this, and the fact that there's no one there's no one else in this space. To be very honest, there's no. And I actually, you know, the only thing that you mentioned which touched on me was was about the concept of kind of the craft liquor space. I don't know if anybody's doing what you're doing in this in craft liquor where it's actually a real industry background, you know, asking the real questions, being an advocate for the real stuff that matters. I don't think someone's doing that. But for what you've done in the beer industry, I mean, you're obviously, you've helped, man. So thank you for your, for your contribution. Oh, that's that's very kind. I think it, it, it's it's definitely earned you a schooner of beer at the bar room next week. Cheers, <laughs> I'll I'll take it. Thank you very much. Well, and and, and Todd Spitalek, thank you very much for joining us on Beer as a Conversation. Uh, we'll, I'll take you up on that uh, schooner very soon. Cheers, mate. Take care. And that was Anton Spitalak. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener, And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. And we look forward to another conversation next week. (laughs) 